it was honestly the most amazing space. I miss version one of the Greyhound. I loved going to version two, but for me, there is nothing that takes me back more to a queer space than the, the sticky carpet of a venue, seeing a, a drag show, whether it's, a, you know, a, a, a man in a dress just talking like this and then doing a number. But it just, it, there's something, there's something to be said for the rough and dirtiness of the spaces of the past and the spaces of the future should just chill out a little bit more from being so clean. I am Kay Anderson and you are listening to Lost Spaces, a podcast that mourns the death of queer nightlife. Every episode, I talk to a different person about a venue from their past, the memories they created there, and the people that they used to know. Dean Arcuri is kind of a bit of a powerhouse. He's a performer, both in and out of drag, photographer, radio host, singer, journalist, and advocate. And his focus is always on highlighting and sharing the diversity and joy of Australia's LGBTQIA communities. He left Melbourne to live in the UK in the mid-noughties, and in the time that he was away, the Greyhound in St Kilda, Melbourne, went from being the back room of a straight bar that was taken over by the gays every Saturday night to a fully decked out, slick, full-time queer venue. We caught up to talk about both incarnations of the pub and what Melbourne has lost since this space was knocked down for brand new apartments. So when you were living in Melbourne, what was the Greyhound to you? I just want to get a picture so you can understand the different parts of it because yeah. there are two two Greyhounds in my heart. Ah, so I don't think I went there that often. I think I maybe went there a handful of times. Well, I'll be honest, I didn't either. Like it wasn't a go-to or regular for me in a lot of different ways. Mm. But what was the space when you went there? Because there really is two Greyhounds to people who are listening. Ah, uh, okay. So I think it was like, I mean, I want to use the word fusty. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a very kind of exciting place to go or anything. Did it, was it painted white or was it the back room of a pub? It was like the back room. Okay. So you were there in the heyday. This was the highlight for me. That I, this is when I loved it. Ah, okay. That was my youth um, and and a portion of my adulthood. But that for me was when the Greyhound was its most iconic. It was when it was the back room, uh, amazing back room. Like back room seems wrong because there was a straight, <laughs> there was a nice big bar. But this was a straight pub in St Kilda that every Saturday night would be taken over by the queers. And it really was the queers, you know, the carpet was sticky as fuck. And, and it was absolutely not anywhere. If you drop something on the ground, you did not pick it up. But it was amazing. And the drag shows were like nothing I'd ever seen before. And I still haven't seen again. And I just loved it. Uh, okay. So I didn't realize this then. So at one point, it got taken over and became like a full-time queer bar. 
Well, yeah, the owners owners who who bought the building then put the work in to really make it that queer club, and they spent a fortune. Like they they did the most amazing job, the most amazing fit out. It was I'm trying to think of a a good equivalent, but I don't have it from a UK term of view. So uh, this this is how I'm going to put it for anyone listening who's in the UK. Imagine, remember, you know that first episode of Queer as Folk when they step into Babylon and the character's going, wow, it's so amazing, blah, blah, blah. Do you uh-huh. know what I'm talking about? Yeah. 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 Okay. They, they did that. And that's the thing. They took this, this backroom space and made it. Uh, they spent so much money to make it so that it was this big, open, giant room. They took over the whole pub and they really knocked it down and made it beautiful. They had an amazing stage, state-of-the-art performance space. And I mean like state-of-the-art. Bands were booking this the, this building to come and perform in it. It was amazing lighting. It was gorgeous. And it was a club. Uh, before when you would come and you could sit around and have a drink and then get excited for the drag shows, that was very much of its era. That was very much built within its time in the 80s and 90s and and then in the noughties they really took it that step further they wanted to be the go-to queer destination and we had three faces in the market down the road in commercial road and they wanted to match it as a club Mm. and it became this amazing club and it was wonderful like honestly the this the Drag performers that cut their teeth on this stage really were lucky because they got – now they step into stages so much smaller and so different, but they have the professionalism of working in what was a professional space. And it was amazing. Like you would have to book – it was all – so when you remember the Greyhound is is when I was experienced the Greyhound, when I first stepped into it. You've got the long bar, the entry, then you've got the open little dance floor, all carpeted, and then this amazing stage. And suddenly they bought the entire – entire building and didn't just take over the back bar gutted the whole thing uh redesigned it had a state-of-the-art stage with amazing lighting and amazing sound a great space for djs and this was they, they designed the club it was something spectacular and amazing it was just wonderful so um so let's not talk about this wonderful new club let's talk about the crusty okay old let's one. go back to the old because because i love it and i hate so many people don't talk about the old one because for me I honestly, if I had to choose between the two, it would always be the old one. Oh, it would yeah. never be the the one. It, it, the what they made it into. I understand what they were trying to do, but to me, that's also the beginning of the demise for the Greyhound. What it Ooh. was for me before, well, and that that was a long demise. Like I'm not saying that in a negative way, but for it, I loved. I cut my like I grew up on a Saturday night. I would be this kid that would get in a cab from Box Hill North, and it would cost me forty five dollars <gasps> to go to the Greyhound, and I'd have no idea because I, you know, like the thought of catching three trains, like two trains and a tram to go to a gay bar, seemed ridiculous. So I just paid for the cab, and it was worth it because there was something friggin' amazing about this space. Okay, so then tell me about your first time. Did you show up in a cab? I did. I got the cab and I went with... I was really lucky to have some amazing female friends who I think were just grateful to be able to go somewhere because they they were a year or two younger than me and I was um, nearly 18. But luckily, because I'm Italian, I looked years above my prime. <laughs> So no one was looking at my ID, but I don't think the security guard was worried about that in the first place. And I was lucky to go with a couple of friends and step into this space that was just, it was, you know what I loved about it? It was the fact that 
it was older queers and younger queers. Like you, there were the twinks who were uh, not that I was a twink, but I mean, it was the nineties. We all looked terrible. If I think about the fashion that I wore, it's just wrong. Iconic. But, um, oh, no, probably not, not, not even. Yeah, it's just no. Uh, uh, I don't know. I, I I look at I look at some of the things I wore now and just went, oh look, I really didn't know what I was doing. But I'm standing here. I'm sitting here now in a rainbow t-shirt. Well, and I think if you give it five or ten years, you're going to look back at that and be like, wow, I was the shit. I promise. <laughs> I don't know. Like I I, I I I was a bit garish, but um, it was it was there was something amazing about it because unlike a lot of other spaces that I went to where you could put, there was a specific type to the space. You know, we, we had the Laird that had a specific type of male. Diva bar had a very another type. So did exchange and everyone would always end up at three faces, but Greyhound was one of the places where, the, and I realized it's the first time I went where you had that old gay man sitting on the corner you of the bar. You had the younger gays. But the thing about it was everyone knew each other. It, it's, even if everyone didn't like each other, everyone knew each other. And there was some universal comfortableness about it that mm. I just loved. You know, it, I didn't feel out of place, which, which was wonderful because, you know, as a young kid, you feel out of place everywhere. As a young gay guy stepping in with some of his female straight friends who are pretty much just there as moral support and are grateful to be able to get into a bar, you know, you they're just like, woohoo. But there was something about this space that it, it, it really felt like everyone was just there and you were just laughing. And even if everyone knew a little too much about each other, it was still great to be there. <laughs> Um, you've hit on something kind of interesting that I'd like to explore a bit more in, in that there are, or at least in the past, there definitely was lots of bars where that kind of, well, I guess, yeah, the community was very segregated and there were so many bars, like I, for me, I felt there were tons that I was just out of place and you know everyone was very twinky everyone was very muscly or everyone yeah. was very this and those bars where there was that mix were such a relief and and so comforting i don't know if it was a relief for me because i don't know i i am a mixed bag so i could step into a space and there was something there for me even when look I, I even when people don't say that i belong somewhere which i still get here and there that's their problem not mine but this is what one of the things where the greyhound was special for me in the incarnation that we're talking about is because it really was and and i don't want to say it in a disrespect to any of the other spaces to say that they weren't community spaces because they were like this this energy that i'm talking about now exists everywhere i just didn't realize it as a young kid i just didn't realize it or see it um because i i had my blinkers on when i stepped into these spaces but for me the greyhound was that space going into that back room, us all standing there watching these amazing drag shows. And when I say amazing, it was these full-on production shows that they did for a period of time. It was so wonderful. And and it was the fact that you had every different age group, every different gender, and everyone was just having a good time. And it was the first time I realized that we didn't have to feel segregated mm. at a space like that. 
Um, because as a young kid, all you do is kind of, you think when you're going to this space, you have to act a certain way. You have to wear a certain thing. Like, God, how many years does it take us all to finally realize we don't have to be that way? Some people are still trying to figure it out. You know, we, there's not anyone who says they step into spaces not being like that. I will frankly believe is, is bullshitting because no one walks in completely confident. No one knows what they're doing. We're all just confused at the end of the day, but this, when they changed the space, when they renovated it, I honestly was like, it, a, a part of um, what that meant to me and what that meant to so much of the community, I think, was lost. And even though they made something truly wonderful that was great, and I'm not saying it wasn't, it what was amazing and special about this was this was a straight pub with a back room that was turned into a gate for years, and it was it was really this this queer space for everyone to come and be and see exceptional drag shows like planned choreographed done multiple group numbers not just one person doing a dress drop and going yas queen or anything like <laughs> that like it was it was the gay version of amateur theater and you got to dance to some great music like it was a saturday night that would make me happy and i wish we still had that now Okay, so what uh, I want to find out about these drag shows, but before we get to that, um, yep. I want to better understand why you think that that sense of community was lost when the place was renovated. When they changed what the space was, don't get me wrong, the people were still coming, but now that it was suddenly this big, open, flashy thing, it was about having to fill a venue. When the same number of people that were in the back room were suddenly there and we were standing in an open nightclub. And when I, it, it, the difference was you're looking at a room that looks like the, the bar in EastEnders, you know what I mean, with the <laughs> stage, mm. to, just a bit darker, to a full-on nightclub. So suddenly it wasn't the mix of ages anymore. Like the older people were there, but they didn't feel comfortable. The younger people were kind of, yay, 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 yay. A lot of fag hags or just a lot of hens parties. Suddenly it changed. And I'm not saying they weren't there before, mm -hmm. but there was a level of control and respect. You knew you were stepping into a certain type of space. You know, you were stepping in to a space that was for the queer community. And it still was, but you were stepping into a club and it was a different energy. And and for me, it, it lost that bit of its soul that that I think uh, is amazing. Mm. You know, the beer gun, the pub, that kind of – there's something about being in a pub where you can still talk to people, you know. You can still socialize with them. But when you upscale your venue to a club and you take away that part of it and, – and I'm not just talking about this the GH now. Anyone that does it, when you take away the part that really allows people to connect other than just staring at each other across a dance floor and drunkenly making out, you take away so much of what makes our communities connect and click Yeah, because we are more than that. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with drunkenly making out on a dance floor. No, God, I wish this, I had yeah. more. God, please. <laughs> and so uh, the friends that you went with that first time, or the first few times, I guess, I'm really interested in learning more about them. I had a, a similar kind of experience. Like, So when I was growing up, I only really had female friends. I didn't really have male friends. And so when I started going to queer clubs, it was like, um, do you want to come with me? <laughs> <laughs> I was really lucky. I um, Look, no, I had both male and female friends, but 
going out, like who's gonna, who's gonna care. I was really lucky that the female friends that I was really closest to, and one of them I still am really close with, were a year below me in year levels. We were part of two different, a male and female school that did musicals together, and we just formed really great friendships. <laughs> Sorry. None of my male mates were, yeah, what, what's so funny? <laughs> did musicals together. Sorry. Oh, okay, yeah. Carry on. And, no, we did. That's that's how our friendship was formed, but they were musical, like they weren't fun musicals, like Pippin. They were, they were Carousel. Or, or like it was just w- there's a reason we form friendships outside of very boring musicals that's how the the schools would be like we're putting on a musical everyone hang out the musical was boring so we actually became really great friends that's pretty much how it rolled <laughs> but um, um and i was really lucky because uh, the the three main friends like there was a couple of others none of my male fr- friends like when I came out to one of them, the first thing he said was, so does this mean you'll start wearing women's clothing? And everyone was like, dude, like he said, he's gay. He's not transsexual. But it was just like, yeah, you know, boys will be boys. Uh, And they were just, these were actually the girls that knew I was gay before I told them. And when I told them, their response was, duh. And then we just kept on hanging out and doing whatever. But um yeah, it was just three friends of mine who were kind of like, what they would do is they were trying to help me because they were like, we want you to be able to go and enjoy yourself. They had boyfriends and stuff and they were just like, we want you to be able to be. And rather than just going, we'll drop you out off out the front of the gay bar and just do whatever, they just come in with me. We actually loved going to Diva Bar. That was where we would end our night because it was, just, I don't know why, but we just would. But it was really wonderful to have this little group of friends that were good enough in the prime of their their female lives to be able to go, we're going to take a section of time to take Jean to gay bars because otherwise I would have... To be honest, every time I went, I tried to, I hooked up with guys or I did things with guys, they were just inter- interested in sex. Guys weren't interested in going, let's go to a gay bar and see what it's like. I put a big effort now into people that even on the apps and stuff who are like, oh, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, well, come and meet me for a beer here or come and have a drink coffee for me here or whatever, because I never had that. Mm. Uh, you know, I never had that in the kind of space. I'm really lucky I had these girlfriends that were willing to do this with me. And when they were over it, because they were 18 and wanted to live their own lives, they were over it and it was fine. And I had to find my own feet. But I'm really grateful for the fact mm. that I had um, friends that were – you know, and I mean, there was the added bonus of them being under 18 and being able to get into places because the security guard was looking at the men, not the women. Yeah. But the truth is that really they were just coming along and having – and the irony that when they were trying to help me find other people to socialize with, I was too busy having a good time with them to care. So there's something wonderful yeah, and special yeah. about that. Well, I was going to say, like, all those extra sets of eyes looking out for men for you, that's quite exciting. Um, you know what, though, the thing <laughs> is, true, but it, it is in theory, but it, I found every time people try to set me up with someone, I'm like, what are they talking about? Why? Why do you think I'm interested? <laughs> but there is something wonderful about that. But also there is something I think there's great something wonderful about the queer spaces we're in. There are always people looking out for other people. And I think that's really wonderful. <laughs> um so drag shows, let's talk about them. You've talked about them being oh. full on spectacular oh. productions. Oh. Can you remember any in particular that you want to talk about? He's, I, I can't, I can see the visuals and I can see Sue Ridge performing and Miss Candy, but is there just one? I, no. And, and this is what's, so for me, these drag shows were like nothing I'd ever seen before, not just because they were drag shows, but, but they were 
put together. They were matching costumes. They were set numbers. They would do a run of a show for a period. Like you would get six weeks of one show. And now if there were six weeks of one show, the first week we'd see the drag queens stuff it up and everyone laugh and it's cute and fun. The second week they might get it right. By the third week, if you're still watching, they get it perfect. And then you don't need to watch it for the next three weeks. And you might be standing in the gut in the bar, but you're not paying attention because you've seen them done it once. These were put together shows with multiple numbers, costume changes, group numbers, solos, telling a story. And 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 what's hard is, is there one I remember? No, but I remember the space. I remember the costume changes. I can see it all so clearly in my mind's eye, even as I'm talking to you right now. And that was when I was just like, oh, this is performing. Like, And it was. And, and the beauty of it was you could tell that it wasn't just the drag queens quickly changing their outfits. There were... There were co- sets. There were amazing costumes. They were con- there were people backstage changing the lighting. There was a team that made this happen, and and I'm not saying that doesn't happen now, but but these numbers and these productions, uh, they were just I don't know. It I can talk on and on about them and say nothing because they were that good. <laughs> um, so then tell me about some of the performers you've mentioned, Sue Ridge. Oh, Millie. Oh, I uh, just look, got that. Oh, I didn't get it. You know, what, you didn't get it? Here's, uh, the hard thing for me, and I feel bad because I wish I'd actually written down some some of those beforehand, is because a lot of the performers who I watched in this show, aren't, many of them aren't with us anymore. And I feel bad right now because I, I can't list them off by name. And I've also had a bit to drink. So that's possibly why as well. Because, you know, I'm in Australia right now, so it's late at night. But um, yeah, it's it, it it it's a very different space and time. Kerry Lagore is another one. Yeah. So was there like a head drag queen? What's uh, there was, but I don't know who they were. Oh, okay. uh, uh, depending on who you talk to, could tell you this. Oh, it was this, or it was that, or it was another. Like there was the core team, and then there were the people that were around that. Mm. But remember, I was also I was I was very young. Like I can have more knowledge about what exists now. Oh yeah, yeah. Of but course. um. But yeah, like for me, like because I never really became friends with any of them. That happened later in my life. So then, um, do you feel that the bar had its own kind of distinct style of drag? It was a show. You know, when you look at the beginning of the film, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and there's all those type of drag queens and they're waving out out the front of the bus and that kind of thing. Mm. It was that kind of show, whether it's a distinct type of drag. And I think as time's gone on, people have become more comfortable dividing what drag is for God knows what reason, because it it's a validity that they want. But it was a show. It was a drag show. Uh, whether it was one person doing a number or three doing a number, the production levels were just as high. And I think that's one of the things I loved about it. Like no one stepped onto that stage, not giving it their all. And, and no one just rang it in. If you weren't up to scruff, you weren't on. And at least that's from, I felt like I was watching a show that you'd see in a theater. And I, because the energy and level, you could tell that they rehearsed, they put all this work in. It was just there. And, and it was awe inspiring. Like it really was, it was just wonderful to see. 
Um, not that, not that, and now I'm concerned because not that it's a disrespect to anyone in any space or place that does it now, but but we don't have as many venues that p- will allow and put that level of space and work into commitment and support drag artists and drag performers to help them put that much work and level into what they do. Like I don't think anywhere. Uh, I don't know, if, and if anyone does, you tell me. You tell me I'm wrong. But but. Things changed in the noughties. Things changed, and it's the performers that have to keep dragging it along. Maybe it was the same thing back in that day, but you didn't notice. Yeah, there's also something about the like drag at that time in Australia because post Priscilla, there was a lot more kind of attention and investment in that mm. in art form. Um, there's something. It's that funny thing. I I always love hearing how both like Filmer Box talks about. Filmer Box talks about Priscilla. I got that as, one straight as, away. Just, just <laughs> want to put that out there. <laughs> and, and also is an amazing performer. Talks about Priscilla as watching that movie made them realize there's something for me. Uh-huh. And that style and art form of drag, yeah, like 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 what RuPaul's Drag Race is now to so many young people, for me, that was seeing these shows. You know, that was seeing a show at the Greyhound. And it didn't mean I wanted to get up and do drag, but I wanted to perform. I wanted to be like them. Like they were holding our attention, the whole room. And and it was like a mini amateur theatre on a Saturday night. Mm. And, and then, then 20 seconds later, they're in a different outfit and in a different number. And it's this whole thing of flipping, uh, flipping all of the things that you have been bullied or ostracized about and celebrating them isn't it um yeah and having that permission and and having a room full of people celebrate you for the things that have always been pointed out as your weaknesses or your flaws yeah and and i think it's also that we we make that space as well for it like there's always something about these spaces where we feel we're welcome because we feel we're so unwelcome in others because of the mindset that whether we or other people put us in and mm. the boxes we make ourselves fit in mm. and there's something really wonderful and amazing about these spaces because these are just people creating what they can but what they give us is something so huge yeah yeah <sighs> okay so okay just let me get figure out this timeline you moved totally. to london for five years then you came yep. back by this point had it changed from completely it had completely changed so i wasn't there i wish i'd been there for the last i wish i'd been able to go one last time but when i came back gh had completely changed gh was a club now a beautiful club an amazing club it's now apartments it breaks my heart but it had completely changed to uh, a massive nightclub. And in doing that, it was a good place for people to go to at the end of the night, but no one wants to start their night in a nightclub and then stay there all night. And that's the thing that people forget. And so why do you bring that up? Because when you change a venue to highlight one aspect and not another, I think the thing, all right, well, there's levels to this now, so I'm going to dive into it. The thing about the spaces that we have, and they mean different things to different people. Um, And when, and we've had a couple of different venues in Melbourne that have transformed from a bar or a pub into a club. And the thing with that is that is a massive change. Bar and pub invites conversation. Club does not. 
And a lot of people don't realize just what an impact and difference that makes to our queer spaces, being able to talk, being able to actually connect, having a room, not just a pool table sitting on a side somewhere and hoping that you can't hear the music over the DJ, but taking away that quiet space for us to talk because the queer spaces that we have, like the one thing, GH Shaw, it had a, they changed it. So there was a front room that was a kitchen where they did trivia or on weeknights and stuff. But the reality was that what they took away was this, this huge social aspect because it was suddenly a clubbing one. Mm -hmm. So the only way you could connect with people was longing glances on a dance floor, making out on a podium or in, in a very small smoking area. It doesn't mean I didn't love it and it wasn't great and it wasn't wonderful, but we, we often forget this about our LGBTIQA spaces is that they are so much more than that one note, but when they cheer towards one way and not another, when you take that away, suddenly you take away a whole chunk of what the space means for people. And it's hard. Can you imagine being a business owner and having to be uh, having this space, running this space, think you're doing okay, changing a direction because it's good for your business or something exciting for your business and you, but realizing, and this is the hard thing with a lot of LGBTQA plus spaces. Some people just want to come and be in them to be around other queer people. And while that's great, it doesn't keep a business afloat. So <laughs> they've got to keep the business going in one way, but it, it really cuts out a chunk. For me, I love any space I can talk to people in. Mm. And don't get me wrong, I love clubbing. I love it. But why am I in a club before 10 o'clock at night? <laughs> and the problem then becomes when 90% of their business happens earlier or at least 50% or 30% of your business happens earlier, when you cut that out and it all relies on people being there at 10, 11, or 12, suddenly you change the landscape of what you're in. Mm, mm. And and it's hard as well because I often wonder the pressure you must have for being a person opening a gay bar or a lesbian bar or whatever identifying bar because suddenly you have to be this thing for everyone all the time. And GH went from one of those spaces that was that to something different and plenty of people still supported it, but whether it was for them or not, because we wanted it to still be what it was. But I went plenty of times where I just didn't enjoy it, but I was there. Mm. You know, it was I was supporting it, but I didn't enjoy myself anymore, and it just changes what it is. But maybe it wasn't for me anymore, and that's okay. Yeah, I mean, there is this weird thing that, like, if you're an owner of a queer space, you have this benefit of uh, having kind of a more engaged community uh, well it's more a plus and a negative well yeah i was gonna say the theory do but i think it's one of the funny things where everyone assumes that they have ownership of your business yeah because it's their space isn't it that funny catch 22 of and and we find this as we've lost like when we lost the gh the outcry we had when the gh the owners went where we're done with it it's being turned into apartments and there was outcry there was a petition for it to be turned into a heritage building it's not but there was outcry and the thing that's funny about it all was all the people that outcried about it if they'd actually showed up and spent some money world of difference yeah. maybe the owners wouldn't have changed it but they didn't come anymore so but they're more than happy to complain so it's this catch-22 yeah yeah absolutely so the thing that I've, I've kind of been exploring with this series and and in the conversations i'm having is that yeah, it's really sad when these places close because they mean so much to people and that they're, uh, 
you know, it's, it's history and it's, um, it tells our story, but at the same time, things do change. And I mean, I think it's that funny thing, like we said, it's history, but the, here's the thing with history. The only way it can be history is for you to let it go. Wait, what? <laughs> well, the only way it can be history is for you to leave it behind. You've got to let it go and leave it behind. So at some point, we've all got to drop it a little bit more. And that's the hard thing with these spaces that they've been this for us. But I think what a lot of people forget is the only reason we have these spaces is because a couple of people, whether one or two people said, I want to build a venue. Mm. And they don't realize this venue is built off the back of one or two people at the most. No one no one is this dedicated to the pizza place they go down the road to or the place where they get their fish and chips from. Like if it goes, you'll be disappointed. But queer spaces, we have this onus and like this ownership to when it comes to all this attention that we put into it, except for, you know what, then we can put our own money behind it. If we care that much, we could if they want to sell it, let's buy it off them. Yeah. I don't I know I've tangent a little bit, but it's that funny thing where it is a huge part of our history and it is disappointing. But the thing about history is at some point you've got to remember it's behind you. Mm. I don't know, you sound a little sad in that um, that you've mm. just said. Mm. I just I, yeah, I, I guess I feel a bit I'm just not sure how I feel about how I feel about it all. Um, Can I tell you, I feel bad each and every time. I feel loss. I, I know I sound really pragmatic about it, uh, but even this conversation that we've been having about the Jihad like it's upsetting to me because it's a space that is part of who I was. It helped me form a part of who I am as a performer and as a gay man, but also it's just part of this awful thing called life. And I think for... Here's what's hard as queer people. We don't have these same constructs and touchstones that, that straight people, or necessarily straight people, I don't want to box in accordingly. But you know what? They hit a point that there's, in theory, marriage, children, a white picket fence, this, that, or the other. These touchstones that force them to change their lives. When we change our lives as queer people, it's because we want to. Being in a relationship doesn't mean getting married doesn't mean we have to fit into a heteronormative lifestyle. Being in a relationship doesn't mean we have to be with just one partner. Having a successful job and being a lawyer or a politician doesn't mean we can't go out clubbing every time. We don't sit within the same construct of a heteronormative space, which I think is why you feel these same energies regards to these venues, because they shouldn't fit within the space either, except they do. They sit within the same space of someone built them up, someone put them there, and when someone's over it or wants to move on, they do. And if no one steps in and does what they do, then that's where we are. And and that's a part, I guess I just go, unless I'm going to step in and spend the money and build a business, I can't complain, even though it kills me every single time we lose one. Yeah. Yeah, I guess there's something about physical spaces not being replicated, like, so, you know, there's not necessarily a physical space popping up to replace it, but there are other things and other ways know, in which people are connecting. I think there's this really interesting space that we've had in the past 12 years 
of pop-up queer spaces or queer spaces that aren't necessarily defined by the venue. Mm -hmm. And it's something that excites me so much. But what it would excite me a little bit more is if the people that are putting this energy and time and space into it, because they, they are putting the work in on so many different levels for generating the social media, generating the community, getting people to come to a party. And I'm like, you are exactly what these people were who went, I want to build the GH. I want to make this. I want to do this night at a venue. And I'm hoping they'll start to funnel it into more foundations so that we can have more spaces, not less. Mm. What was I going to ask? Um, I haven't asked um, about any of your making out stories. Oh, my God. There are so many. (laughs) So what is the most embarrassing one? Go. Oh, that implies that I'm embarrassed by making out with people. I don't have an embarrassing making out story. Can I tell you my most memorable one, though, is... Uh, as long as it's funny. I go. don't have... Embarrassed. <laughs> no, but here's the thing is, go, what's my most embarrassing making out story? Who has an embarrassing making out story? <laughs> Who should be ashamed of that? I'm asking seriously. Have people had embarrassing making out well, stories? I mean, it might not be the making out itself. Like, you know, I mean, other than if someone pukes up in the middle of it. But, um, the you know... Well, I don't the, want someone puking in my mouth, but I've never experienced <laughs> that. So, thank God. Um... You know, just the the story around it, not necessarily the making out itself. I don't know. God, no one's ever asked me. I've never paid that much attention to when I'm. <laughs> oh, do I, I've never had an embarrassing making out story. Like for for me, a snog is the most liberating thing. It's the most comfortable thing, and it's the most beautiful thing. So to think that there's an embarrassing like. If someone, oh my God, just even now that you've said it, if someone pukes <laughs> in my mouth, like, yeah, that's, I'm terrified at the thought of it. But what's an embarrassing one? I've never even had a moment where someone's made out with me and two seconds later puked, but I think they may have done it in it privately. Oh no, I don't have one. Oh, no, I'm trying to think. You know okay, what? Now, okay, now scratch I'm sure embarrassing. It'll come to my mind after we leave, but yeah. <laughs> scratch embarrassing. Just you, okay. you, you take us where you're going to take us, making out. Oh, okay. A making out story. I don't know. When I think of one of the fondest spaces I've made out with someone uh, and it was really lovely and hot and wonderful and it was after I was working like crazy, there is nothing better than making out in a doorway. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> there's some, No, but there's something wonderful about it because you have this frame that – I know from a distance, it at least frames you physically while you're doing it with someone. And and I made out with a friend of mine once. Um, maybe he made out with me a little lower than my mouth, but we'll leave that there. Um, made out with a friend uh, once in the doorway of the Laird Hotel. And um, it was hot and lovely and wonderful. And I'd just done karaoke and I thought it was awesome and it was great. And then we got into a Uber and I was like, okay, great. Thanks. See you later. Da, da, da. Got home. And then the next day, um, I got uh, a joyful call from the owner of the venue saying, oh, did you have a good night last night? Yeah, yeah, it was wonderful. Oh, yeah, no, you seem to enjoy yourself. Oh, yeah, no, I had a good time. And then they sent me a clip of myself on the security camera, not realizing <laughs> the door is obviously a place where the security camera is, and the hour and a half worth of footage of our making out, <laughs> which we did for the whole time. So that was good fun. Well, and so no one needed to use the door, was it? Well, the venue would close by oh, then, okay, so okay. I was literally 
it was there's something beautiful about a door frame in both to lean against and also the way it frames you as taxis are driving past. <laughs> so um, there's something wonderful to be thought about that. And I didn't think about it. And we had a really like, you know, when it's just one of those hot pashes where you just, it's oh, animalistic, pash. wonderful. It's the end of the night. And it's just like a thumbs up and it's all good. And then once it was all done and I'm talking about an hour later, we get into a cab and we're all good. Not realizing we were the perfect framework, both in lighting and in framing for the security camera. And they made gifts. They had such a fun time with it. The owner of the venue thought it was hilarious. And they used to put it in video clips on the in the venue. <laughs> You've made it. That's it. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was my moment. <laughs> Snogging my mate in the doorway. If that's the highlight of, well, then it's only downhill from here. <laughs> um. Uh, are there any snogging stories in the Greyhound, since that's what we're here to talk about? I don't. I mean, I did, but nothing that makes... For me, because it's hard for me, because the Greyhound for me was before... The Greyhound that is in my heart was before I left for the UK, which was so long ago. Um, I made out with a lot of people in the Greyhound before. Uh, actually, less in the Greyhound before than the Greyhound after. Like, I was still very young, and I was not... Uh, making out with someone at that stage in my life, like 18, 19, 20, that was like, are we in a relationship now? Like I had no fucking idea what I was doing. So <laughs> I was like, is that what we're doing? Like, so I was the more timid person. So I'd make out with someone and be like, woohoo, I've made it. Then the week after when they'd see me, they'd be like, hi. And I'm like, okay, we've been dumped. No idea what I was doing. But, um, oh, that's heartbreaking, isn't it? When you no, get, it's know. not though because oh, you're just a is. kid. Like who knows? No, but mm, he's. I don't know. Like I. All right. Look. So here's the backstory of me. I've said it in enough podcasts. I can say it now. I started figuring out who I. I knew who I, I liked men at the age of eight. Mm -hmm. I knew I was attracted to men by the age of twelve because I was Italian. I looked a lot older, so I went to a brothel to make sure I wasn't bisexual. And at 12. they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay, but I didn't look it. Um, and they were like, you are not of age. This is not okay. But I've never had a better, more, more sex positive conversation with women in my life than the rest. And it was like I, a school holidays. And the, the entire day, I just spoke to women who worked as sex workers, the madam of the place, everything. And I've never felt more reassured about who I was or how I was or smartly, responsibly figuring out what I could do or how than in that moment. And then, sure, I went to Beats, which if you're in the UK is, what are they called? Um, cottages. Um, and that that was me from the age of 12 where I figured out what I liked and what I didn't. I had some relationships that I thought were relationships when in fact they were just people who were couples trying to avoid each other so that had sex with me. And the reality was by the time I hit 18, like I had done a lot of stuff, a lot of stupid stuff. I'd done a ton of stupid stuff. So I was just looking at for a real connection. So when I made out with someone, so when you go, oh, that's really sad. I made out with someone. It was because that was the only relationship or connection I understood about gay men or sex or anything was physical. And this is why when I talk about a place like the GH and the connection, seeing older men, and I mean older men like 40s, 50s, 
70s. I was an 18-year-old kid. This diverse range of people in a space just talking, there was no other place like this for me. You know, there was no other place that showed me that people could be happy and comfortable. You look at that as being sad. I look at that as being me not paying attention, making out with someone and then going, oh, well, they're not okay, interested the week after. Because that's what you do when you're young. But actually coming back to the same place, seeing the older people, having the older people go, oh, well, that's what he's like, having a laugh. And then us all just chilling out, having a drink and then watching a drag show. That was my queer community. That's where I learned what my community was. And that, that I can never take back. Like I miss us. It's funny that we've gone from one extreme to another because I was, when we were talking about snogs and making out, missing it so much, but the connection that, that, I, that I had to that was purely physical, but the connection of my community, that that's all about the places. Mm. Yeah. And so maybe my sad comment was, uh, misinterpreted i think it's like i'm not judging you (laughs) (laughs) i'm just i'm just you know like just clearing it up there is that thing that and and you've just said it yourself is that like when you're uh coming to terms with your sexuality there is that external message from society that like oh so if you're gay then the only way you can connect is sexually because that's all we see you as um as like this dirty or isn't it more uh, do you know what we think it's that but if you're gay you're going to die alone <laughs> you're or, yeah or you're going to die that. because of sex um yeah like uh, it's, it's that you're not going to get anything yeah <laughs> but and so going to like going to your first queer places or go you know going out and meeting other queer people um there is this thing about like oh finally i can have this kind of sexual connection and this this um Isn't it funny where we spend this huge portion of our time? It's sexual and social and figure out what the comfort is with that. And that was my entire 20s, trying to figure out what that was. And you're right. There is this comfort in it that's just like, wow, I'm okay. Like, it's okay. And and we hold that connection to the spaces we were in where we realized that. Mm-hmm. So it is really sad when we lose them because whether it gets torn down and turned into another building or whether it changes or gets sold, it's because that's the space that I realized a part of who I was. And that means so much, so much more. To like, I, I know plenty of people that don't understand what I'm saying, but it means everything mm-hmm. on so many levels. Mm. Well, it's, like, it's almost like school as well, isn't it? That that like a, a majority of your heterosexual counterparts at school kind of got to figure that out at school, and you didn't. You had that. Oh, I don't even think they figured it out at school or after. <laughs> I think that was miles ahead of them. Oh, but oh, here's an interesting point. All right, I'm going to get a, ask a personal question in regard to you. Did you ever do beat slash cottaging at all in your life? Not when I was like a kid. Okay, that's and no, that's fine. Not, not Whether it was like, a kid not, or not. Yeah, sorry. Do you ever go back and visit those spaces? That that, and not that are no longer beads. As in they're go- well, they're not anymore. Like, but but they they're toilets at the end of the day. Like I can still go and do Why my business. Why are we talking about these toilets? No, sorry. We can do <laughs> like I'm happy to come back. The, Believe the, me, the I've got like you'll in... need you'll need another podcast for me to talk about me being a beats. Uh, <laughs> but but I like going back to them. And and I'm not going back to do what I did before because that was a period of my life, a period of this, that, and the other. 
uh, that's a whole, yeah, you're going to need another podcast for that. But uh, I like to go back to it. And even if I'm just sitting on a dunny and remembering some experience <laughs> that I have within that space, I know we all laugh, but it's No, no, sorry, it's the word dunny. So there's a few words that I'm like, oh, yeah, I haven't heard that word in a long time. So pash and dunny. I'm like, oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so you're sitting on a dunny. But, but these are the spaces. <laughs> yeah, but the... <laughs> Now that you've said it, it's all I'm thinking. But these, whether it's sitting on a dunny, on a dance floor, on a podium, in a beer gun, in the corner, no one noticing you in the bar with or the pub with the sticky carpet, wherever it may be, it's the place where you remember that moment or you remember being seen or you remember anything. And those moments are so important. They're important to everyone, but to queer people, they're they're these seminal moments that help make, shape, and change who we are. And we're so lucky, even though we don't think it at the time, because we understand who we are and we get to express ourselves outside of the box that society puts us in and the spaces that give us that energy to be okay to open that part of the flower of who we are or to liberate that part of ourselves. we need to celebrate just as much. And that's why I I think it's great that you're doing it here on this podcast and remembering them. I think it's wonderful. Thank you. Um, I like like that you've just said the flower of who we are. I know. I'm just worried we were stepping too much into a blooming flower rosebud. I don't know. It could go a lot of different ways. But it's true because these spaces did that, though. Like, it's not just about this moment I realised that I like dick or whatever. Like, it's that excitement. It's the butterflies. It's kissing the – making out with a person and realising they're a dickhead. These are the spaces that did these for us. and, and And allowed us those spaces to be who we are. And we don't get like the re- you know why it's good that we celebrate, remember, and remember those is because you know what these places are made off of the hard work of other people, but we don't just get them like straight people, heterosexual people. You just get it because there's the presumption of it left and right. We get it because of the work of other people, and we're lucky that we get to take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Like we really do. Did you ever go to the Greyhound? Well, if you did, I would love to hear from you. Tell me your stories and share any photos through social media. You can find me on most platforms with the username kandersonmusic. You can also find out more about Dean on Twitter. Follow him at Dean R. Curie. Easy, right? Lost Spaces is not only a podcast, but a concept record as well. I've been writing songs about queer venues and the people who used to live their lives there and will be releasing songs over the next year. You can hear the first single, Well Groomed Boys, which is also playing underneath my talking right now on all good streaming platforms. If you liked this episode, I'd really appreciate if you subscribed, left a review on Apple Podcasts, or just told people who you think might be interested in hearing it too. That'd be great. I am Kay Anderson, and you've been listening to Lost Spaces. <laughs>